podcast, you are listening to Let It Out with me, your host, Katie Dalebout. And today in the podcast, I have another long, winding conversation with my friend, John Leland. And he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. He's so kind and loyal and friendly and smart and funny. And you're going to just find him to be a delight in this very long conversation. We talk about everything from Ramdas to moving to adventure to grandparents being like time machines to finding your purpose and before the world was big and just so many different things and I can't wait for you to hear all of the meandering places this conversation goes and I'm going to get right to that before I talk about the sponsors. I just quickly want to say I love doing this podcast so much. I get to talk to these people that I find fascinating and I get to share it with you guys and then continue to have these conversations and it's just one of my favorite things I do so thank you to everyone who's been listening for a while and if you're new welcome there's a Facebook group that you can join that you know you can just meet other people listening and the coolest thing is this weekend I'm actually speaking at the good festival in Philadelphia with a bunch of past podcast guests like Jordan Younger the blonde the balanced blonde and Jessica Renan of one part plant and Talia from party in my plants and and so many other people are going to be there. And I'm really excited to, to give my talk, which is about creativity and, and writing and journaling. And I'm also really excited because after the festival, if you're in Philly listening, or if you're going to the festival and just going to happen to be in Philly on the 22nd next weekend, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, we're doing a podcast let it out meetup. So if you listen to this podcast or if you are listening right now and you want to come, I would love to meet you there. We're just doing dinner. All the details will be in the show notes for this episode. And if you want to support the podcast, the best way is by leaving a review on iTunes, sharing it with a friend, giving it five stars, subscribing, all of those things. They seem silly, but they really help out a ton. And, you know, blast it from your speakers while you're walking, while you're driving, um, maybe while you're in the subway. We talk about New York City quite a bit in this episode. Anyway, I love you guys, and thank you so much for listening, as always. And thank you to our sponsors like CW Hemp. So here's the thing. I tried Charlotte's Web Hemp, this amazing supplement that I love. Actually, our podcast guest today, John, was with me when I tried it for the first time in Maui with our friend Pete Holmes. And it's just a fantastic supplement. It helps you feel more calm, more focused. It It's something that's really helped me when I'm on my period. It It's just great stuff. And it's a whole plant hemp extract. And if you, you know, want something that will help you with exercise-induced stress, if you want something that can just make you feel a little bit calmer throughout your day, I highly suggest trying CW. And so many of you guys are saying that you're trying it and you're loving it, and that makes me so happy. I love turning people on to things that I also love. So if you want to try it, make sure you use the code Let It Out at checkout. That's Let It Out. And that gets you 10% off all of their products. So you might as well use the code. Plus, it helps me out to, you know, let them know that I sent you. And, you know, it's just great stuff. I think you guys will really like it. Another sponsor of this week's episode is Aptiv. 
If you've been listening for a while, you know Aptive, you love Aptive. It's the best way to do fitness on the go and and just in general. I, I use Aptive when I'm home, when I'm traveling. It's Aptive.com and you know, you'll do the same thing to get a free trial this time. You'll use the same code as, as the last sponsor. It's let it out, but it's Aptive.com. It's A-A-P-T-I-V.com. And here's a little bit about Aptive. They have so many fitness classes. They have workouts that you can do on the treadmill. You can train for a marathon. They're accessible anytime, anywhere, and you can incorporate your movement into your day in like a really nice way. You can choose the amount of time you want to spend on it. You can choose the intensity level, and there's a thousand fitness classes, including running, interval training, strength training, indoor cycling, elliptical, yoga, and they're adding hundreds more new ones every single month. How amazing is that? And the music is actually good. I love Aptive. Thank you so much for supporting the show, Aptive. And if you want to support the show, check out Aptive. Just go to their website and use the code LETITOUT, and you'll get it for 30 days free. 30 days of a trial for free. All right, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to the sponsors, Aptive and CW Hemp. Try them out. Remember to use the codes LETITOUT. Both of them, it's the same code, nice and easy. I love you guys, and I love this conversation with John. I hope you enjoy it as well, and I will talk to you at the end with some information, like the emoji to tweet at us, and yeah, talk to you soon. Oh, it's so good to be hanging out with you. I've been so excited to have you on the podcast, and I feel like we've been, it's been a long time coming. That's very true. <laughs> it's, well, we've tried to schedule this for like three months. I know, but it's finally happening. We're here. So how are you? How has your weekend been? What is new? Uh, my weekend's been great. I've been spending today working on my uh, animal meditations project. Oh, which cool. We're releasing collections two and three this week uh, with an article in the Creators Project. Oh You're familiar goodness. with that? No, tell me all about it. Uh, the Creators Project is a part of Vice, where they focus just on... I think interesting creative projects. I don't. I'm not. They like found this weird little project that I'm doing on the side before we even tried approaching anyone about it, and uh, did an interview with me last week or so. Um, so they'll be publishing that this week, which is really exciting. So and exciting. hilarious. Oh my goodness! <laughs> this is such a silly project that it's. Uh, I don't know. I find it all hilarious. It's such a cool project. Can you clue in everyone who's listening about what it is? Yes. So animal meditations are uh, collections of guided meditations that are scientifically accurate and take listeners inside the body and habitats of very specific animals uh, in real time. So it's the experience of being like a three-toed sloth or an albatross in flight um, or an elephant taking a bath and they like, you know, are educational, um, try to be accurate, um, and are generally very relaxing and kind of fun. Wow, that is so cool. I'm so excited to, to try these. I haven't tried them yet. They're on iTunes now, right? Yeah, collection one is on iTunes, and then we'll release collections two and three uh, this week. Oh, my goodness. So how, do you do a ton of research to make them accurate and figure out, like, are you working with scientists? Or are you just How are you researching that? Definitely not working with scientists, mostly working with Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> they don't know that, but we've had most, they're almost all the tracks are recorded, researched, written, and recorded by different people. So it's also working with people that volunteer to do these, uh, to be like, these are the rules, 
and work with them as they like write scripts and suggest that they add more information or take things out. Um, and then they record them and we produce them and put them in collections. That's the coolest project. I'm, I'm going to try it, the first collection right after this. So where on iTunes, um, what are they called on iTunes? Animal Meditations? Animal Meditations is what they're called, yeah. Oh, all right. Well, that's, that's easy enough. I highly um, recommend. Actually, we have collection one is free to download if you go to our website, which is animalmeditations.com. Oh, perfect. Well, I'll put it in the in the show notes. I'm so excited. I kind of, we I, we learned so much about each other and like learned so many things that I, <laughs> this is like the coolest thing about you and I completely forgot about it until this moment. I'm, I'm so excited. How did you get this idea again? How did this come to be? Um, well, it came out of a few different places. The, the original like sort of genesis for it came out of Jeff Bridges' sleeping tapes, which is something the actor Jeff Bridges yeah. uh, released maybe two years ago. And I was kind of obsessed with this one track on these like really dreamy tracks that he wrote and recorded where it's called Temescal Canyon and you're like doing this dreamy hike with Jeff Bridges and he's talking about what's going on and it's lovely. Um, and there's one part in the hike where he looks up and he says, oh, there's crows flying up there. If you, if you want, we could pretend to be crows. Oh, and then he says, I love the way he says, he says no. that. If you want, we could pretend to be crows. Yeah, and then he says, no? Okay, let's keep walking. Oh. And I was always like, no, Jeff Bridges, let's be crows. <laughs> that would be so much fun. Um, and then I started, I don't know, I go into like Wikipedia, you know, holes yeah, all the yeah. time. Oh, and I yeah. started reading about pangolins, which are kind of like a weird armadillo kind of creature. They have like armored bodies and stuff and I was like re reading about them all day because I just found them fascinating and as you do you know as you <laughs> and I had a friend come over who was just really stressed out and had a really rough day and she was like really upset and so I just had the idea to do a meditation with her where we would be pangolins and she mm -hmm. had her sit down and talked about it and you know, talked about being a pangolin, what your body would feel like and how you sense the world, which is like pretty much through smell and just walking around the desert floor, smelling things. Uh, I think we ate a bug and then, you know, sort of ended it and she was far more relaxed and I thought it was really fun. So I wanted to make more. Mm, you're so good. That just, it's such a great story to lead with because that's so you of like, here you are researching <laughs> these animals and then... <laughs> This friend who is stressed out comes over and you want to help her and you do in this like beautiful, creative, mindful, interesting, funny, goofy way. It's like such a perfect, <laughs> it really encapsulates John. It, I love it so much. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's very sweet of you to say. And I'm so glad that that happened because now I had kind of a stressful day today and I feel I already feel better talking to you right now. And <laughs> after this, I'm going to go get to do that exact meditation. So I get Go the full experience. Three-toed sloth is my favorite okay. off of collection one. It's, it's Done. fantastic. Done. It's happening right after this. <laughs> so, okay. I like to start these podcasts with the present. You know, I, you have such an interesting personal story and you have so many crazy stories that you've told me that have like made my life so much more interesting and what I've loved 
from being friends with you even in this short amount of time. But before we get into all of those, like I said, I like starting in the present before we go into the past. So what have you been learning lately? What have you been passionate about? What have you been going down Wikipedia wormholes about? What's exciting you presently, like as in today or the past week or so? Um, Okay, that's a great question. I think in the past week or so, I mean, I've been traveling a lot, so I've just been coming back into being in one place again. I've traveled for about half of the time over the last four months. Um, And so just sitting in my own house, honestly, like meditating, turning on the lights, stopping, you know, shutting off all of my electronic equipment and then reading. And I usually wind up reading... Uh, I have a hard time reading one thing at a time. I'm usually reading like eight things at a time. <laughs> um, and so right now I'm reading Barbarian Days, which is a surfing memoir. Um, I'm reading Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, um, The Art of Communication, a book of poetry by Yeats. Um, I think those are... And wow. I've read some articles recently that I really liked. There's a great piece in The New Yorker that I read yesterday on um, loss and which I highly recommend for the final four paragraphs. Oh, um, okay. Just the just a writer writing about losing her father, which is beautiful. Mm. That's really interesting. That's that surfing memoir. You're the second person to recommend that recently, and I love how much you're reading at at one time. That's like how many <laughs> things some people read in a year. <laughs> um, so that's amazing. And there was actually a great. Um, are you on Josh Radner's newsletter list? No, I just saw you posted about that, though, so I signed up for it yesterday. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll forward you the one that went out yesterday because I think you would actually really enjoy it. It, it was about grief and loss. Um, and when you said that about that New Yorker article, I think a lot of – I haven't obviously read that yet, but I'm – you know, kind of guessing that maybe some of the themes might have been similar. There might have been some some overlap because he talks a lot about grief and and loss and um, in a really articulate, interesting way. So, I think I think you might dig it. And I love um, I I kind of know that feeling of just being cozy and grounded in in one place for a moment where too much of that is not good, but not enough of that <laughs> is not good. And it's about like finding that balance, that combination. You know, always. So it was always like, yeah, and the process of like returning into that grounding and like, it's like a nesting inside yourself that I always do in these moments that feels lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you kind of have to warm up a bit with yourself when you get like back home, or at least I do. Like, I'm kind of like, wait, how does being home work? Because you're just in like being not home mode and you have to kind of be like, oh, okay, this is the way I I do things here. (laughs) So, Okay. How did we meet? Uh, we met in Maui at Ram Dass's winter retreat, where I uh, you had been there before. Is that right? No, never been. Oh, first that was time. your first year. First right. time uh, in Hawaii in general. But you had friends. You knew people. I was just like went by myself, and I think I walked up to you and a few other people that you knew there, and I was like, "Hello, fellow young people." Yes. Just, Everyone else there was like a 70-year-old, beautiful hippie person. Yeah, goals. And there's only like a few of us that were not that. We stuck out. Yeah, definitely. I was yeah. like, and then you guys were immediately like, let's hang out. And I was like, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> I need friends. 
I was like, you're cool. I want to be your friend. Let me bring you into my group that I don't even really know if I'm a part of because they're so cool. <laughs> well, I <laughs> felt so we anxious at that at that moment because I had spent four days by myself in a tent uh, on a beach in Maui not talking to anyone and just like four days by yourself is just enough time to get into like a weird mental place but not enough time to like break through it to the other side where oh. you become <laughs> really good. Uh, and so I was just like, feeling antisocial and didn't know how to relate to people and to go from like being isolated on a beach by myself to the middle of this like hippie conference uh, <laughs> where everyone's just like looking at you in the eye and touching your shoulder was really intense and difficult for the first 24 hours or so yeah I didn't spend the week prior alone and I still felt anxious the entire time <laughs> And it's so funny. And I, I had Misty on the podcast uh, last week and I recorded again with Val and I was just saying I'm like I'm having our entire group, our our cool kid group <laughs> from this, um, you know, spirituality summer camp that we were at, Ramdas summer camp um, on my podcast lately. And every time it's come up of, of me telling the story, which I've I've told you multiple times of how I was so in my head about being like, wow, everyone here is so cool. Am I cool enough? Am I good enough to hang out with them? Is every am I okay? You know. And um, what I realized is that like I wasn't the only one that had those thoughts. Like we're all kind of in our heads a lot, and which was probably why we were there in the first place. <laughs> that definitely is why we're there in the first place. Yeah. The idea of coolness by itself is just so fascinating to me because it's like it is something that we obsess over um but doesn't really make any sense <laughs> to say me more, never... say more about that well okay no one is like the idea that someone we're so worried that someone's going to reject us or accept us based on how cool they are doesn't i mean all it is is my own insecurities about like how i value myself usually projected on other people so if they're like a rock star then there's part of me that's like disappointed that i never wound up becoming a rock star mm. and i want them to like me because like it'll help validate that help fill that hole um whoa <laughs> which i think is most of my sense of what cool is it's like a reflection of things that i'm insecure about myself about um and as i've like gotten more confident in myself I think fewer and fewer people are cool because coolness is, I don't know, I think it's a distancing thing. It's not very personal. If yeah. you interact with someone as because, in a way that's like shows that you think they're cool, you're definitely not present with them. You're not relating to them as a person. You're relating to them as like kind of an object. Um, and that's not, that can't be great for them either. Wow. I'm just like taking this in. That, that was like a watershed moment for me. You just articulated that really well. I... Thanks. I, that's something that I have struggled with a ton, and I probably have talked to you about this before because, you know, even though we just met a couple months ago or several months mm -hmm. ago now, I feel, for, like, the people listening, I feel like we have had a lot of really good, deep conversations because we were kind of in this incubator of friendship that just kind of sped everything up that week. Yes. And, and then from there, we kind of hit the ground running, like, of all just wanting to keep in that community and keep that closeness, which, you know, to some extent, I, I think we're, we're doing a pretty good job with. And I, I think, so anyway, back to what I was saying, I, I think I told you this, but 
it we make people special, you know, people that we know from, you know, on the internet and then you meet them in person. And, and this has been something that I've done over and over again in my life with people. And it's not that they disappoint me or it's not that they aren't what they seem or they're not real or that they're fake in any way. It's more that I just can kind of see them eventually, as you said, but, you know, maybe this is just kind of saying that in a different way, but I see them just as a person and I just kind of it stripped away anything other than, you know, anything I use to make them special. And I just see, oh, this person is just a person. This person feels feelings. This person, it's much like that, that meditation thing we did in Hawaii of, you know, this person will die just like me. This person has been lonely just like me, like that whole thing. And, and that, that was what that experience really gave me because there in Hawaii, we weren't, you know, John, the amazing person who has this really cool job and has had all these experiences or, you know, the comedian or the this person or the that person. We were just like people there and stripped away of everything, our identities. And that was really healing, I think. I think it was really good. But I think for me, I was still what the way you talked about defining cool and the way that you talked about, you know, it being an insecurity within yourself when you look at people that way totally makes sense to me, but I didn't really realize that was happening and that it was just a mirror for me until you really explain that to me right now. Well, great. Yeah, good job. <laughs> I, mean, I, still, I still succumb to this all the time, obviously. And, you know, I think right. about like with Pete, who's there with us, yeah. having listened to his podcast for many years before meeting him there, like, um, it can be tricky, but I have to segment it in my mind. I'm like, there's there's my relationship with his podcast and what's meant to me. I've talked to him about it, but like in terms of interacting with him as a person, I have to be like, you're just a you're just a person, right? <laughs> and that's that's where I come from and and talking with him. Yeah, um, but it is it's a tricky thing to pull off. I think. Yeah, it was it was really hard for me, especially like with with Pete, with you know, and then other people too. But but that's that was definitely. A challenge and we talked about that because I you know you make people so special it's hard to to strip that away and um, I like what you said about just kind of like segmenting that in your mind and because you know you said this too it makes them uncomfortable because then they can't connect with you as a person because you're making them special and yeah you can't have like a connection if you're doing that I think it's the worst for that person I think it's why so many celebrities are lonely a lot of times because people don't interact with them in a way that's very human yeah yeah and it's a skill to develop as the non-celebrity to be able to you know turn (laughs) what a a term (laughs) yeah Um, as a a normal normal human being um to be able to turn that off and, and turn it on and off but yeah, I, I totally understand that. Even from, you know, I mean, this is like a silly thing, but, you know, people who have met me from my podcast where, you know, it's this interesting experience where they know everything about me because here I am talking about my thoughts and feelings on the internet all the time. And we kind of have this weird dynamic, at least for a few moments when we first meet, where they know me so well and have all these perceptions of me and I know nothing about them. And it's about, you know, I just want to be like, oh, you're cool. No, let's be friends. You know, like, you're amazing. <laughs> like, I don't want to stop. Like, you know me. Like, I just need to hear everything about you now so we can get on the same level. Um, so it is an interesting experience to have someone know a lot about you where you don't know anything about them. And you have to, like, give that a chance, I guess. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, the the 
information asymmetry there is just so great. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, talk, and like saying hi to Pete, I was like, let me tell you my deepest, darkest secrets immediately. So we're like at least somewhat balanced yeah. here. I know everything about you. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like I'm a stalker, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's such, I know. It's such a strange thing with the internet, but also I love it. It is, it is great and weird and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> All of the above. So what led you to getting to that retreat and deciding to go on your own? Um, well, I'd, I got into Ram Dass probably four years ago, four or five years ago. Um, I was at the time in law school out in California at Stanford and grossly unhappy. Um, I was going through pretty severe depression and anxiety and I was dating a girl who lived in Berkeley and had grown up in Berkeley. Um, and I think she had be here now on her bookshelf. And I was like, yeah, I think I pulled it out and she was like, oh, you should read that. It's excellent. And nothing, I grew up in Washington DC, uh, which is a town that doesn't really contain, uh, in terms of its culture, anything along those realms. It's not a very spiritual place. Uh, along any lines. I mean, I grew up going to church every Sunday, and I never felt any sense of spiritual inkling or resonance with the institution, because it's mostly just very cerebral people. They're very wonkish. They're like bureaucrats and policy wonks, and uh, everyone is just thinking with their rational mind all the time, and there's this like entire side of human existence that I think is kind of neglected there uh, in terms of the culture. And, in term- and then going out to California, I sort of then discovered Ram Dass and Joseph Campbell and that kind of strain of spiritual thinking. And I was like, oh, this is giving voice to an entire part of my being that I've ignored for three decades. Uh, and that realization and waking up process was very painful and difficult. Um, and so I worked through that for years with the help of Ram Dass and Marcus Aurelius and other teachers uh, just reading their books and got more into meditation and sort of exploring that world. And eventually I was like, you know, the opportunity to come up to Maui to the Ram Dass retreat came and I was like, I'm definitely doing that if I can make my way to Maui. Um, and I talked a bit with uh, Krishna Das and his crew after doing a retreat with them in the spring and they hooked me up with a ticket uh, to come to Maui because it was sold out. And I jumped at the opportunity. Mm. It It's so interesting how I talked to so many people who were there about how, you know, one thing led to the next. And like you were saying, it was sold out. Like for me, same thing. I think I told you when I decided that I wanted to go, it was also sold out. And I said, well, if a spot opens up and then it did, like it was just kind of this magical thing that everyone kind of got there with a similar story. Which, yeah. Yeah, which I always love. So can you do me a favor, actually, real quick? Mm-hmm. And I haven't, you know, for people listening, obviously they can give him a Google, and I highly suggest <laughs> that they do Wikipedia him. But can you say in your words who Ramdas is and kind of what, you know, in your words, what his work, like, has done for you? Sure. Usually the way I describe I start with explaining... Ram Dass as one of the people that discovered psychedelics in America. Um, he was a professor of psychology at, at Harvard. He was born Richard Alpert, so uh, born in Massachusetts. And while at Harvard, Timothy Leary, the author, got the office next to him, I believe, 
And they went down to Mexico and discovered psilocybin or mushrooms together. Uh, and that sort of launched their exploration, very hardcore, intense exploration of psychedelics at Harvard, where they were like taking all sorts of things like acid with students and just like locking themselves in buildings for weeks on end, um, which not surprisingly led to them being and kicked out of Harvard. So wait, one question, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. were people not doing mushrooms before they went to Mexico and discovered them? Were they really the ones that discovered them? Yeah, they really, them? I mean, they discovered them in terms of American popular culture, yes. No oh. one was doing them. Okay, I didn't I didn't realize that. So then uh, they, they had that yeah. experience on mushrooms, and then what about acid? Was acid not like a thing then? And then they came I back... Don't think it- yeah, I don't believe acid had been synthesized yet at that point. So then they were like, okay, we did this. We found this natural occurring psychedelic. Can we recreate this in a laboratory? And then that's how acid was discovered? Yeah, I'm not sure who developed acid, uh, but it was just, it was developed after that. Okay, gotcha. Just to clarify. Okay, these are just – I'm just like riveted by this, so – go on so then <laughs> um so then they're they're bopping around with students they're they're getting expelled from harvard yeah so sorry just i just looked up lsd it was first synthesized in the 1930s and the government used it in the 1950s but they started using it recreationally in the 60s okay cool what 60s. was the government using it for not oh, you aren't aware of whoa you aren't aware of the government's lsd tests where uh, the CIA was like dosing people with LSD to see if they could use it for like mind control and chemical warfare. Whoa! Yeah, there's a lot of like videos of it <laughs> where they like gave soldiers a lot of LSD and like, this old grainy black and white footage of like these soldiers just like wandering around a forest like looking at trees. Whoa! <laughs> it's amazing. Oh my um, goodness. But so after after they got kicked out of Harvard, eventually. Richard Alpert went to India with LSD um, and was like, what is this, right? Obviously, in his formulation, he was he learned more in the first five hours of taking psilocybin the first time about the human condition and human psychology than he had learned in a decade of studying psychology under sort of the Western framework, which I think is an indication of how clinical um, and objective and scientific sort of the western psychological tradition is and has been versus how subjective and ineffable uh and transcendent the experience of psychedelics are right which we don't which we don't handle very well (laughs) in western medical uh lexicon yeah so you know it was transfer it was taking him to this place but he would always you know Every time you get high, you come back down. So he was a sense of like visiting the Garden of Eden, but always getting kicked out. And so he went to India with LSD and was like, is there someone here who can tell me what this is? Who can teach me how to actually stay in the Garden of Eden? Uh, and found this guru named Karoli Baba. Why did, sorry to stop you. Why did yeah. he want to go to what, like what, you know, what he's from. to India? Yes. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know uh, the answer to that. Um, I'm guessing it was known to be a spiritual center of the world at that point. And I think some early hippies, certainly some early hippies were starting to go over there. Um, why did he think they could know what LSD was, though? Like, why did, I guess, just the more not exactly like what it is and how it how it mm-hmm. works, but how 
to stay in that state was more what he was like trying to discover. Yeah, I mean, and he saw it as like a spiritual truth, um, and I think his relationship with the Western Church like was not satisfactory. Right, that didn't seem like the place where he was going to get answers for this, even though this seemed like a, a religious question. Uh, and that's why I think he went east. Right. Okay. Cool. So he goes east. He meets Neem Karola Baba. Mm-hmm. What happens and next? He gives Neem Karola Baba acid, and he puts it in his mouth, and is like, "Oh, uh, what did he say?" He said something. He just laughed yeah. and said, "Like this is a nice, you know." Nice but basically, nothing or, happens. Nothing happened. No effect. He took a ton of acid too. Neem Karoli Baba was like, give me all of your acid. Yeah. <laughs> Let me eat it. Well, doesn't he take like some and then nothing happens and they're like, oh, he, it's because he didn't take enough. And then he's like, watch me. And then he takes all of it and yeah. then nothing happens. And nothing happens. Right. And so studying under him, um, he basically learned about, I mean, Neem Karoli Baba was a Hindu teacher um, but yeah, I mean, learned practices of meditation and devotional practice, uh, and really just hung out with this guy who I think, and I really had this, you really get this sense spending time in the presence of Ram Das and Krishna Das and these guys that were in India with this guy named Kurli Baba, which is they had the personal human experience of hanging out with Jesus Christ because in their understanding this guy is basically an enlightened person. He's an enlightened being, just as Jesus was, just as the Buddha was. There are occasionally these people that are able to transcend this world um, and are just like these enlightened beings. And the impact that those individuals have if you're able to spend time in their presence is really profound. And you can see, I think, in these guys who are more relatable as like regular people. I think if I met a Jesus Christ, they would just be blown away by them. But Richard Alpert and particularly like Krishnadas are, are regular guys. Uh, and they've continued to struggle in some ways with that personal experience of hanging out with Jesus Christ for ever since. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, it clearly hasn't always been easy. I think... Ram Das, it was he was able to handle it much better, but Krishna Das had a hard time with it, um, and had some really dark times after Neem Karoli Baba died. But it's like a kind of mind blowing experience that they had. Um, when Ram Das came back, he came back as a teacher, uh, teaching meditation and the practice of being present, and wrote the book "Be Here Now," which really laid the foundation for the concept of presence in American and Western culture. Yeah. Yeah. So, so did that, when you found Be Here Now in Berkeley, was that, like you, I think you already said this, that was kind of your first experience to open, opening up yourself to these concepts, and then from there, did that kind of lead you into all sorts of other things? Yeah, it, to me it was opening me up to a vocabulary to describe uh a huge part of the human experience that I hadn't had even a vocabulary to, to describe to myself those concepts. Mm-hmm. There's a large parts of Be Here Now, particularly the first time I picked it up, there was things that I, it's hard to understand. Like it's these snippets of wisdom, but they're all talking about these kind of ineffable states and like experiences. And it's hard, 
it's hard to understand that, particularly if you've grown up super cerebral. I'm, a, I'm amazingly rational, um, hyper-rational, hyper-logical, it's, and I've overdeveloped that side of my brain, and I hadn't developed the side of like emotional presence and transcendence and cosmic love of cosmic oneness. Um, I had had some experiences in those realms, but I never had even like the the frameworks or vocabulary to talk to myself about them. And it was really an opening up of that ability for me. Mm, yeah. When we talk about, you know, how they had this experience with this enlightened being and that can be really heady for people. It's really heady for me (laughs) and still is. Um, But, uh, you know, I eat it up. I love that sort of thing as much as the next, well, as much as the next guy in Maui at least. But but for you, you know, was that something that you struggled with? Did you feel like you had to kind of like deprogram a little bit of the, did you, you said you went, grew up, went going to church, but not super spiritual. Was it Catholic? Mm -hmm. Did, Did you feel like you had to kind of like deprogram some of that conditioning to kind of get you into this and was some of it you know a struggle is still some of it you know challenging for you to connect with now can you talk about that yeah um it's certainly challenging not because i need to deprogram from my uh upbringing in the episcopal church which is (laughs) a pretty lightweight church uh (laughs) as far as they go um the deprogramming comes from, I think, a place, again, of, of rationality, yeah. of control, of logic. And whenever I talk about, you know, going to Maui and things like that with my family, they all kind of roll their head and, um, you know, it's like they make, I forget how they always say Ram Dass's name, but it's definitely not Ram Dass. It's like, you know, Raja. Boss or you know they just like turn it into mumbo mumbo jumbo john's weird uh, uncle yeah <laughs> and so i think you know it's it's it requires all these leaps of faith which to me is is just saying like i i'm, I'm not gonna totally understand everything i put myself into i'm not gonna be able to control everything like particularly in a rational mind if you aren't able to understand something from a logical perspective then you tend to discount it and not even pay attention to it um and so here i'm like trying to lean into experiences that require me to suspend my sense of logic of my sense of rationality so i can experience something that transcends that concept because i can't expect myself to fully comprehend the human experience if I, requ- if I require my brain to fully comprehend my experience and be able to, like, rationally describe it, then I'm going to cut myself up, off from some of the best parts of being alive. Mm. Oh, I love how you said that. Yeah, I think that's something I'm constantly wrestling with is, you know, for you, it's that logical brain. For me, it's kind of partly a logical brain and a very concrete upbringing with you know, my mom who gave me, you know, this great sense of right and wrong and how to be an adult, but also, you know, like you, very logical. And, you know, and then also, you know, for me, like growing up Catholic and just there's like this little part in my mind where like I find things that I want to believe in 
or you know I see that I find really comforting and you know concepts like Ram Dass, um, like you know and many others that just kind of go right in easy mm-hmm. they just go down oh, yeah. real easy and <laughs> and I want to believe them and I do but then there's this you know this doubt that creeps up for you it sounds like logic for me it's kind of like deprogramming stuff and I think we all have that but it's about yeah. managing that and allowing what you want to be real to be real mm-hmm. I think frequently with the you know, there are the messages that come in easily, and that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that it's important that you have that feeling and experience that you keep pursuing. For a lot of the stuff that's harder, I either find that, like, I think it's important to ha- not have any judgment when you're like, this doesn't resonate with me. It's important not to have judgment of, like, no, it should resonate with me. Like, you should never feel that way about it. I think oftentimes I'll have that experience. I'll be like, oh, this doesn't resonate for me. This seems silly um, or false. And then I'll come back to that same message maybe like a couple of year later. And then it will kind of go in. And it's because I just didn't understand what it was trying to say. Um, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. It does. And I think having these conversations helps that. You know, I think that's why community is so important and I think that's why you know that experience of being in Maui with a bunch of people either you know really grounded in these beliefs or wanting to be or curious and on some level of the spectrum and I think I varied on where I was on that spectrum you know each day I was there each moment I was there um but I think you know having conversations like this to be like oh we're all kind of wrestling with this and helping you know each other along and staying in on the side of truth and virtue and not really being so concerned with what is true and what is real and you know what happens when we die necessarily of just being being (laughs) focused on who cares what happens when we die and who cares let this makes me feel better this is a better way thinking these things and believing these things make me feel better now and make walking through life better now, which I think is what Ram Dass is saying, the way I'm interpreting it. Yeah, I think, you know, the idea of truth is really funny there. I frequently ascribe more to uh, Werner Herzog's notion of ecstatic truth more than, like, a scientific truth. Uh, If you've watched his films, he'll sometimes include in his documentaries things that are he will acknowledge factually false, but he says are ecstatically true. Which is to say that the impression that you get from watching them brings you closer to the truth than if you just saw like a true statement about what was actually happening. Oh, I love that. And I think a lot of these things are ecstatically true. Which is where if you try to analyze them from a logical position, they will wind up being false but they bring you closer to the true experience of life, of what reality is, than a mathematical, logical explanation of what's going on here. Mm. Yeah, I think in one of Pete's episodes with Richard Rohr, he says a similar sentiment about, like, the tales in the Bible or something about, like, they're, you know, always real, always true, and sometimes actually happened or something like that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
who was that filmmaker? What what was his name? Werner Herzog. What I have, I have this is I'm unfamiliar with him. I'm excited. Ooh, Werner Herzog has made, been making films for decades. Um, he has recently done more documentaries. He did uh, Encounters at the End of the World, which is about people, which is about Antarctica. Um, he recently did a documentary on the internet. That's his Ooh. most recent. Uh, did the you Burden see that at Pre- Sundance? Uh, he was at Sundance a year ago with that film. Oh, cool. I'm excited to... That sounds fascinating, and all of, I'm excited to like go down the wormhole with him. He's a very strange man. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, going back to quickly, and then we'll kind of like land the, the Ram Dass plane and like fly another kite about you, but... Um, when we were talking, another thing that we kind of connected about is that for you, I found Ramdas through Pete, and for you, you had already been, um, you know, listening to Ramdas and reading Ramdas and, and familiar with these concepts, and then you found Pete, and you were like, oh, there's another dude who's, you know, wrestling with this stuff and into this stuff, and it kind of, you know, helped you along in that way. But can you talk about that and how, you know, what we were saying a little bit before about community and why having community is is so important and finding like-minded people and um and kind of you know similar people in a similar phase of life that are you know interested in these sorts of concepts yeah so and i explained this to pete once in, in terms of talking to him about the value of his podcast for me in my life um which is i can listen to Ron Doss's lectures and tapes from the last four decades. Uh, but he's such an enlightened guy. He's, he's so far along the path that he's speaking from this, what he described as like, you know, the palace inside his soul. He's like discovered the palace and he's sitting in like, he's, he's discovering the rooms, but he's, ta- he's just describing the palace and he speaks with this clarity of that place. And it's really important it was really important for me to listen to his voice over and over again. So I knew that palace existed as well inside myself, but I just had to find it. Mm-hmm. Because when I started the path, I was really depressed, really anxious. And I was like, I would describe where I was as more of like a bog in a really dark wood. <laughs> and so hearing someone who was like, there's a palace, you got to find it, is like helpful to just be like, maybe there's some better place I could be. Um, but if all you're doing is listening to that guy in the palace, you're like, well, I'm in a bog right now. I understand that there might be a palace somewhere, but I have no idea how to fucking get to it. Um, <laughs> listening to Pete, you know, when he was, particularly when he was starting his podcast back in the early days, he was also uh, seeking, right? He was also in his own woods. He hadn't found the palace yet, but he also was looking for it. And his where he was in the woods was very different than me. He was maybe just like in a thicket, uh, and I was in a bog, but hearing someone else sort of that's also kind of lost and looking for this was really comforting to be like, okay, let's. I know this guy who's speaking me, to me from the palace that got there. Yeah. Let's see if this guy can get there. <laughs> um, and it felt like there was understanding and there was comfort in that, particularly if you're in a situation where you're surrounded by people that you feel like aren't seeking in that same way. That's so, it's so interesting because I too, you know, there's you in your bog and me over in my yurt, you know, and we're all just kind (laughs) of like trying to get 
get to the palace and yeah you're right it's it's sometimes easier to talk hear someone a little bit closer to where you are to be able to yeah. learn from and not so many steps ahead and it's it was so cool that you were able to articulate that and art- articulate that to P and anyway I just relate to all of that so much um oh yeah I'm so glad that that we met and that this happened and that Thank you, Ramdas. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you um, for bringing us all together. Anyway, so like this experience, you've had so many experiences that you've told me about. And like I said at the beginning, but you, or maybe I didn't say all of this, but you're one of the smartest, most interesting people that I've ever met. And you've lived so many different lives and traveled so much and had so many different experiences. And after this, you're this really sharp, present, kind, grounded person. And as you've shared, you know, maybe you haven't always been that way. You've done so many different things, but what experience or story has kind of shaped you the most and led you to how you think and believe today? Oh man, <laughs> that's a that's a hard question to answer. I mean, also thank you for uh, saying so many kind things about me. Um, I did, I did, can't pick a single experience that's really shaped where I am today. It's been a um, you know something of my meandering past, but it has been a series of like adventures and decisions to take a lot of different leaps. Um, there was a moment where I, ha- I did make the decision to live a life that was like a little bit more, I think, daring than it otherwise would have been. Uh, right after college, I you know, went to Wesleyan, I majored in psychology, I, I went back home, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. Like a company in D.C. that was like, come be our marketing director. It was some job I was totally not qualified to have for a very boring company. Um, and they were going to give me a nice office and a nice salary. But I looked at my brother and sister, who are both older than me, and they had graduated and moved back to D.C. and got jobs, and they were still in those jobs. And I was like, that to me is not what I want to do with my life. <laughs> uh, I don't, I can't just do the safe thing forever. And that's definitely my family's tendency is to, is to do the safe thing reasonable thing and so instead I literally ran away from home one weekend uh, and caught a bus up to New York and I was supposed to be home for dinner on like this Sunday and instead I caught a bus up to Boston and got picked up by a friend and we drove up to Bar Harbor, Maine and I wound up getting an apartment that was like abandoned, it was a condemned apartment uh, with like a roommate and I was a busboy in a heroin dealer's restaurant and it was <laughs> just <laughs> it was hilarious but it was also like rationally the wrong decision to make on so many levels um, but it was the best decision I've ever made in my life because it started this path of just like taking a lot of leaps and uh, following the path that was maybe stranger or what I always like would not expect myself to do mm-hmm. uh, Instead of doing the safe thing that would have kept me, you know, close into D.C. and probably being, a, a, to be honest, like living a pretty boring life and not being very fulfilled. Yeah. It's so funny. You told me that story when we missed Chris Gethard's show and hung out in New York. <laughs> 
And that was such a big light bulb aha moment for me because I've kind of – my family is very similar to, to yours, as, as I've already shared with you. Um, mm-hmm. But I've been kind of doing the opposite, kind of playing it safe in so many ways in my life. And I decided – just made a choice really after Hawaii in particular and going to Hawaii I think was part of it that I was going to actively push against that and kind of go upstream of what is natural for me and isn't it funny how kind of like one step in that direction ever like doesn't really matter how small it is you know maybe it's signing up to go to Hawaii or like in my case like dyeing my hair pink or in your case like you know going on this bus and and (laughs) living in this condemned apartment you know like we all have different (laughs) stepping stones um but it can kind of like be like okay yes I'm doing this I'm making that this is like a statement to the universe that I am going in this new direction and then things can kind of line up in a and hopefully it can like meander into this beautiful tapestry that becomes your life in this new direction yeah i think um the different there's actually a lot there so the safe thing is always something that you can predict you can play out how this is supposed to work out so if i stay in this place i'll have this job and if i stay in that job for three more years i'll probably get have this position and then i can maybe move to this neighborhood and you can play out the scenario and the scary thing about not <laughs> not staying there and starting to move in different directions is frequently the fact that you don't you can't play out the scenario. And if you do play out the scenario, it doesn't maybe it doesn't even look that good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you start opening yourself up to sort of unexpected results from these things, and open yourself up to as many unexpected results in your life as possible, then things start getting, I think, really interesting. And things do fall into place, line up, and snowball. And it becomes, I guess, easier over the time. I've always struggled going against sort of what is the expected path out of where I am. Uh, but I've always forced myself to do it. Um, <laughs> but like, and it's, and it's always led to much better outcomes for me, even though I couldn't have predicted them at the outset. That's so what I needed to hear today. You have no idea. It's so timely (laughs) for me. And I also think that's so helpful for everyone. But, you know, it's kind of, I guess we're talking about change and uncertainty. And, you know, you, you just said this, but you seem, and I know that it's true that you're someone who has developed this or, you know, maybe some of it's innate to you, but you're really good with change and uncertainty. How do you kind of allow how did you kind of get to that and I guess it's just the more you do it the the easier it is but what are like are there any like tangible skills or are there any like things that you've (laughs) developed that have helped with that like how do you when you're really in that and you're I guess I'm asking like how you handle fear sorry for the very non-Terry Gross compound question that I just asked (laughs) (laughs) uh no but you got you got there I think fear is is the right thing and I certainly feel it still all the time when I take leaps, whether that's like starting my own company or moving to South Africa or um, moving to Colorado or moving to uh, traveling around Asia for a while. Uh, So every leap I've taken, I've been immensely fearful and kind of nauseous throughout. Um, (laughs) But, (laughs) which is good, like that that is true and it's my body being like, this is scary, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But 
I look at the alternative, right? Which is, again, just to, like, stay in the safe place but not realize, like, my potential, not discover something new about myself. If I live at a place of fear, I'm, I just know I'm not going to be happy at the end of the day. And yes, I'll be more comfortable. I won't be as nauseous. But to what end? Like, what am I doing here otherwise? Like, I think I'm only here just to take leaps <laughs> of, of, like, faith on, like, love, on unexpected things happening, to experience as much as I can. And that only happens as you take these risks. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's keeping in mind that you're not going to be able to see the end of these things, right? Like, the path isn't going to, you're not going to be able to plan the path ahead of time. And we're so used to wanting to be able to do that. Our school, our upbringing always teaches us to do that. It's like, this is what you're supposed to do in school. You, you then apply to college. You go through those steps and you climb the ladder. You pick a major that has like a path laid out for how you like pick the major, then where you're supposed to go to after college, and then where from there. And all of these paths that are known are so full of people most of whom aren't really on that path because they want to be on that path and that path is their calling. It's because that path is safe, that the archetype that they're chasing that's at the end of that path, whether that archetype is being a lawyer or being like a movie star or being an entrepreneur is something that they think would be cool to achieve. And so they chase that archetype. Um, and they're on this path with millions of other people their age usually. Uh, and it's cutthroat and it's difficult. And if you can start developing the skill to like meander off these paths and just open up opportunities to there are like different forms of working, of creating things, of traveling, of new people that you put yourself around, whatever it is, a lot of different forms of it, you start moving off of those written paths and you start hopefully you stop chasing archetypes, I hope, and start trying to find like who you really are. Ooh, wow. Stop chasing archetypes and start finding who you really are. Whoa. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to to have these conversations and and like I said, very timely. Do you think it's a generational thing? Do you think um you know, our parents' generation seem to there I guess there always were people not, you know, going on that path, like Ram Das and Krishna Das, I guess. But, you know, I feel like it was more common to go into those, you know, archetypal paths that you were talking about. So it's difficult to connect and understand each other sometimes. And, and maybe like as a culture right now that that is even happening. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a generational difference there. I mean, there's obviously always been people on both sides of that. Um but it's gotten a lot harder. The, those the opportunities along traditional paths have narrowed as more people, there's, you know, as we have a larger generation now than the one before us. So there's more people trying to do fewer things, um, <laughs> and I think a lot of the like failures of self discovery and self actualization in previous generations has to do with people that chased archetypes and tried to live up to them. I mean, I went through. Uh, right, I went through law school. I've known, I've worked in a law firm. I've been a lawyer. Uh, I've known lawyers, and they're mostly unhappy. Right, they're people that um, chase the idea of, oh, if I'm a lawyer, I'll be happy. If I'm a successful lawyer, I'll be happy. If I make partner, I'll be happy. 
uh, it's this idea that like oh, once I get there and I like achieve this status of this role of a person, then I'll be happy. And I've talked to so many partners that are millionaires, right? They're making millions of dollars a year. And one of them, I remember when I first started working at this law firm in New York, was like, yeah, I have no idea what's important to me. I was like, oh, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's Uh like they want to quit their job and like want to find some actual true calling, but they have no idea how to listen to that voice inside themselves anymore because they haven't cultivated it. Yeah. Right. They've spent most of their lives trying to kill some idea of like who they really are so they can put in the hours so they can like dedicate themselves to the task of being a lawyer. Um, But and for some of them that being a lawyer is totally in line with who they are and what they should be doing and the kind of labor that they want to be engaged with. But for most of them, that's not the case. Yeah. Unfortunately. So with your story specifically, like you said, you studied law and you've had so many different jobs and different ventures <laughs> and experiences that have led to where you are now and what you're doing now. Can you tell us about that trajectory and how those things have helped you in the career you have now for yourself? Um, I'll try to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, in broad strokes, I um, after college I, and being a busboy in heroin restaurants, I was... You're not still doing that? <laughs> not still doing that. Okay. Um, don't eat the eat at the Fish House Grill in Bar Harbor, Maine. Got it. Noted. <laughs> um, but I was a website developer, freelance. I taught myself how to do that, basically volunteering for people at times and then getting jobs. Um, I started a nonprofit in South Africa um, with a couple other people out of college, one of whom is... You know, it was her baby. It was her idea. She just invited me on to be one of the founding directors um, from a technical and business development standpoint. So we do uh, educational programs for orphans of AIDS and other vulnerable youth in rural South Africa. We also started a fair trade jewelry company um, to support the nonprofit. And I wound up going to law school. And in law school, I worked in, I had some weird jobs in like, violent crimes and terrorism for the United States Attorney's Office, and I worked in environmental law for the Natural Resources Defense Council and uh, climate change policy in the United Nations. And then after law school, I started my own tech company because I realized I, didn't know, I did not want to be a lawyer. Um, so I started a tech company that was based, uh, built around the idea of helping people make creative projects, um, particularly pulling people together around creative projects and was a lawyer briefly but then wound up getting invited to join the team at kickstarter where i serve as director of strategy Um, and basically now work on how to create communities that support creative agency particularly like you know i look at specific categories like film or uh, publishing or design technology or games that we support it's really cool it sounds like kickstarter is kind of a culmination and especially your role there now which you really got to create sounds Mm -hmm. like a beautiful you know combination of all of these different skills of kind that you've learned in all these different jobs really led you into this position do you feel like that yes absolutely and i definitely could not have planned my path (laughs) yeah um but it worked out perfectly i get you know i sometimes get emails from 
you know, kids that just graduated from Wesleyan where I went and they're like, Oh, I've got this internship at Google. And like, I'm just trying to like, I think your job sounds really cool. Do you have any advice on how I might like get there? And I'm like, dude, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) You're, you're already like way so far ahead of where I was at your age. Uh, but I think it's hard to plan it out. I think it might be hard to plan that path. Yeah. Um, because it's yeah. so nonlinear, all of our paths. Very it's like that. I always think of that Steve Jobs quote, you know, you can't connect the dots moving forward. You can only do so looking back. Yes. And I'm just hoping that all of these, like, weird experiences and things that I've done are going to prepare me for whatever the, you know, life purpose thing I'm doing in the future is. <laughs> and hopefully they, they have. I think they do. I mean, and I think, again, sort of going back to talking about traditional paths versus a non-traditional paths, people that work along a very traditional path – I think it's way much harder for them because like how do you stand out doing like trying to put together the the same resume as everyone else whereas if you start putting together all these like kind of unusual experiences either things you're creating yourself or then like doing some work for someone else if you start cobbling those together you start looking really interesting and and then the doors that start opening up to you are far more interesting as well but you're not competing with people that look like you anymore yeah I love that I've tried to ask you this before, but, and I know it's different every day, but what exactly, you know, being director of strategy (laughs) at Kickstarter, we all know Kickstarter, we all love Kickstarter, what an amazing company and brand, and and for you to be, you know, in that, working in that environment, and I know you've told, I at least know a lot about the actual environment and like how cool the office is and the people that you work with but what is it a little bit you know what is it like I know it's different every day but kind of you know bring us into that a little bit and kind of what exactly you do with that title yeah so Kickstarter is a relatively small company we're only about 120 people um, and it's a pretty small size given our footprint my work tends to be supporting our community development team so we have all these outreach teams that are dedicated to say film or games, publishing, design technology. And I'll work closely with that team on their strategies and insights into their communities, particularly from like a data perspective. And then I also propose and lead strategic projects for the company. So I'm working on, you know, I'll work on projects about, these are hard to talk about because some of them I'm not allowed to talk about publicly. That's okay. (laughs) Um, But there might be like a, strategic partnership initiative so i'm working on one of those so i'm i'll go talk to the companies organizations that we're interested in working with in a specific capacity uh trying to get them on board to work with us on on a program or i'll do research into our backer community and develop programs to engage those backers more and bring them in closer into our community and to dialogue with us I think at like 5 a.m. in the morning at the L.A. airport when we had just flown home from Hawaii, I I had asked you about your job more and, and you were telling me and I was like, so you're kind of, this might have been me being like sleep deprived, but, um, <laughs> but I think I was like, you're kind of like a fairy godmother and you get to just like find, discover these really cool things and figure out how they can get funding and get out and get made in the world. And I thought that was so cool. Yeah, Kickstarter as a whole is, is, has very much has that feeling, and that's one of the great privileges of working there, is getting to see, it is the experience when you get working there and, and looking at the site every day, you're just seeing every day hundreds of people take this enormous personal and creative leap of putting their idea into the world and seeing if a community, they can build a community around it and a, 
our community on the site will respond to it. And there are such weird, delightful, crazy ideas that are on there. And the communities that form around them are, are lovely. Um, and so it's always very inspiring to see people doing that. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's a really cool job and one that you probably couldn't have predicted you having. So what do you think that your younger self or your you know, <laughs> teenager kid self would think of your life right now and your, um, you know, your exact career even? Yeah, it's hard for do? me to even, <laughs> yeah, it's hard for me to relate to my adolescent self and even piercing the fog of that time in my life is just hard now looking back um how so because my worldview was so small and limited like everything that was happening to me was i wasn't thinking like oh i i don't think i was thinking about like what i wanted to achieve in life as much as like just surviving as an adolescent yeah <laughs> you know yeah, I get and that. uh I don't think from where I was then I'd really appreciate where I am now. Um, I think I'd probably think it was pretty cool, but it would be hard for me to conceptualize what Kickstarter was back when right, I was that's high school. True. It didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the fact that my job is essentially the, the highly intellectual labor of supporting creative agency in the world is to me like the best thing I could possibly be doing with my life. So yeah. um, having that kind of joy and purpose in my work is something that I hope that my adolescent self would appreciate. <laughs> he would. He would. No. He'd be like, you know what, John? You did good. I'm proud of you. That's what he would tell you. Adolescent self would just be really happy that I'm, you know, eventually grew to be six feet tall because in high school I was less than five feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, it's so interesting to think about high school as it's this little like microcosm that you're just trying, you don't know, at least for me. And I think it's probably different because of the internet for kids now, but it's just so small. Like you only, oh, the only thing that matters is the people, you know, honestly, some of, some of me misses the, you know, simplicity and the presence that comes with that. But, mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I don't at all, you know, like it, I like how big the world is. It can be overwhelming, but I'm glad I know it all exists. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I don't know how, I mean, there was the internet back in high school, <laughs> but uh, it didn't really exist in the same way back then. Yeah, uh, for me too. So you've also moved around a lot, we mentioned, and you've lived in a lot of different places, mm -hmm. you know, where did you want to live and, and what do you think about moving and, and you know the concept of finding your home and now you live in Brooklyn does does that feel like home and and talk about you know your experiences moving and the discomfort that kind of comes with that and the personal growth yeah so I've uh Brooklyn definitely feels like home and it kind of always did post-college I moved around a lot and I think this is my seventh time living in New York and I'm 33 so that's a pretty uh, <laughs> frequent bumping like bouncing in and out of New York right um, so it always felt like a kind of a home base and I always had a lot of friends here that I could come back to but I knew I've always known that like 
and particularly in my 20s, I was like, there is a window of time here to explore. Um, and I really wanted to seize upon that. And I think I was pretty intentional with where I moved to in terms of like what I was seeking from it. So in moving to like Colorado out of New York once, you know, it was really so I could go experience nature because um, I wanted to live in the mountains for a little bit. And so I lived in Boulder. Um, I lived in, in moving in California. I mean, I went out there for school, but I also knew I wanted to, to experience the West Coast. There's just a lot to... There's so much of like the human experience, both in terms of people, cultures, environments, and how they impact us that like, I just want to experience all of it. It's like, I want to taste everything that you can taste in the world too. Like if I'm here, why not try to experience all of it or as much as I can? (laughs) That's something Um, I admire so much about you. I've talked to you about that before. Well, thanks. I, I think I get all this from I have, my grandparents were the sort of people that also traveled a lot and were very adventurous. And so in looking at their life, I was like, they did it right. <laughs> my yeah. grandmother, when she was 18, before World War II broke out, she like hopped on a freighter with, you know, by herself and traveled to Japan, China and the Philippines, which is Whoa. like for a woman like an 18 year old woman alone in like the 1930s damn wow that's a novel like you need yeah. to write a novel about that oh i helped her write her memoirs oh perfect <laughs> amazing great yeah she's the best she just turned 99 years old and she is awesome she's a time capsule <laughs> she is she's a time machine yeah wow. <laughs> you'd be like hey plummy we call her plummy plummy we'll be like oh. hey plummy tell me about thomas edison because she knew thomas edison as a kid that's crazy. Crazy. Like, talk to someone who has first-person experiences of the person that invented the light bulb. What did she that, say about uh, him? What was he like? Tell me everything. He was, <laughs> <laughs> he was an old man who had retired to the town that she summered in as a, as a young girl in Naples, Florida. And so he would just hang out on the porch of this old hotel drinking every day. And he was just a nice old man that everyone wow. knew. Wow. She, yeah. But it's, that's very odd. pulling out those stories is really fun yeah I I actually talked about you on the podcast I had my grandfather on the podcast and um, in the intro to that episode I quoted you with the time machine line that that you said in in, um, Hawaii and I was like my friend John says that old people are time machines and so that's why I'm doing this episode blah 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 and and so for people who listen to that this was the friend I was talking about (laughs) Um, yeah, I think everyone should talk to their old people. Yes. <laughs> we all, talk to your old people. Get out. Like, I'll also, you know, ask questions like, what was it like to, like, what did you do when you hung out as a teenager? <laughs> Which is one of the questions I asked Plummy last time I saw her. And she was like, well, we would just go out on a picnic blanket and we'd sing songs with each other. Oh. <laughs> she was like, do people still sing? Oh. And I was like, you know, sometimes we get together and maybe someone will have a good heart and, and we'll sing songs. <laughs> and she was like, do they sing old war ballads? And I was like, nope, we stopped doing that, Plumbing. No more, no more war ballads. Aww. And then she, <laughs> then she started singing one. Oh, that's so cute. I love Plumbing. I hope I get to meet her someday. <laughs> she is the best. I Did you tell her that we made up songs all the time in Hawaii? No, I did not. I thought I should have told her that. Yeah, next time. She would like that, I think. That's very true. 
what, you know, have you learned about family? What are like some lessons that you've learned about family, including plumbing? <laughs> True. <laughs> lessons I've learned about family. Wow. I don't know that anyone's ever asked me this question before. Um, Exclusive here on the Let It Out podcast with Jonathan right. Leland. I've just never considered that. So I love my family to death. Um, they are sometimes, you know, oh man. Um, I take, I, I'm kind of a weird, I'm like kind of aloof in my family, at least particularly in my immediate family. Because um, I'm like the weirdo that will move around a lot and um, kind of do these unexpected things. How many um, brothers and sisters do you have again? I have one brother and one sister. I also have a half brother and half sister who are in their 50s. And you're kind of in the middle, right? I'm the, no, I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. That's right. Yeah. That's I'm, right. I'm the baby, which d did allow me to get away with a lot more growing up, which is, I think, fueled my instincts to run off, mm -hmm. do my own thing. Um, I've enjoyed, like, one of the things that, in terms of how I relate to my family, is thinking about it both as, like, something that, I want to grapple with either in terms of moving away from, like how do I want to grow away from this place or things that give me inspiration. So certainly like Bapa and Plummy, my, my mother's parents have always been an inspiration in terms of their intelligence, uh, sense of service um, and adventurousness. Um, but I also like think about my family in terms of I, you, I see in my family a lot of the same instincts that I have because we all manifest. We're related. We, we manifest a lot of the same tendencies. Right. So getting to see in my family some of the tendencies towards like being really safe and risk averse and then making the conscious decision that like I have that in me, too. I understand why what that feels like and I see it playing out in them. And in seeing it play out in them, I can make the decision that, like, that's not necessarily what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. And so it's not judgmental of them. And, uh, like, you know, they're happy and they're living great lives. It's just like, I don't think that's what I want to do. It doesn't require me to shun them or, or even, like, ignore that part of myself. It just helps show me some aspects of myself outside of me so I can consider them a little bit more clearly. Yeah, I see that happening so much for me and my family. Of, It can be very uncomfortable to have those moments where you realize that that's within me and I don't want that, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, like putting that mirror, it's, it's, they mirror these, you know, parts of ourselves that are challenging or that we, you know, don't want to intensify. And, you know, having to go against that is a challenge. But I think, you know, this kind of goes to the conversation that we were having before where it's like you have to make that choice of doing the safe thing that's cozy and comfortable and easy and okay or doing the unknown thing that is scary and fearful and uncomfortable and sounds terrible but at the same time <laughs> <laughs> worth it because i think really the only thing to fear is stagnation and yeah. um and i think that's that kind of can be mirrored for us you know yeah definitely and my family certainly doesn't always understand what i'm doing or why but at this point they're like they understand that they're not going to understand <laughs> and they're very loving and supportive 
that's great that they're loving and supportive. Has it always been that way? Or how do you deal with when they're not? Like, does that get in your head? How do you deal with being like, I'm unsure of this decision. I don't know if I'm making the right decision even. And they're not thinking that this is the right decision. How do I do it anyway without their support? Or, you know, even if it's not directly their support without their permission, even though, you know, we're all adults and don't need that. But like, how do you do things anyways when you don't have that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one is just understanding where they're coming from. And I think at least in my experience, where they're coming from, if they, if I'm getting some message of like disapproval or severe questioning with some judgment, um, which is, you know, I come from like an East Coast, somewhat waspy family. So I think conflict is not on the surface necessarily. Um, but it's understanding where they're coming from. Like I, and they are my family. I know that they love me and they're expressing concern, which is an expression of love. Right. <laughs> and uh, wherever they're coming from, there's usually some voice inside me as well that is sh- agreeing with them. <laughs> and so I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna be angry or upset or be like, you don't get me. Um, if, we are if if I'm making a choice that isn't totally understood by my family, um, but it's just trying to lead them as best I can to where I'm at and saying like I'm going to do this anyways. I'm like thank you, yeah, <laughs> you know thank you for being concerned and I and I get it, yeah, but this is what I have to do. So, um, yeah, I've talked about this a lot with with our mutual friend Val, but. How and podcast guest, friend of the podcast, Val. And I think we actually. <laughs> I'm going to see her tonight. Oh, yay. Are they in New York? Are you in yeah. LA? Oh, cool. In, oh, yeah. New- I think I heard um, on the podcast that he has a show coming up in New York, right? It's tonight. He's, oh. he's doing two shows tonight. Cool. Exciting. Yeah. Um, anyway, with, what, with Val, what we talked about was just that are us doing things outside of our comfort zone and then therefore usually our parents or family's comfort zone stretches them to have to meet us where we're at and then by us growing therefore they grow as well which i think is how you know generations can change and help grow each other totally but you have to be (laughs) you, you should keep in mind that you're making the choice to grow they aren't I think what's difficult for them is that they aren't they don't have the agency to make that choice. Like you're making the choice for them to grow. Um, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and that's hard. That's that's a much harder position because they they may not be in as comfortable a place for that growth. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point that I had that's kind of where the tension comes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So something else, speaking of family, that you shared with me was that you lost your mom at a young age, and that was such a you know challenging experience that that taught you a lot, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, is that something that you know? What is something that helped you during that time? And is there something during that grief process that you know someone told you that was helpful, or that you wish you would have known, or? Um, you know, anything you can share with, with people that might be going through something similar? Uh, sure. I mean, it was horrible. <laughs> um, so I lost my mother. She, she wa- bought, uh, fought cancer for 10 years. 
which is enough time that like it became the new normal and I was like I kind of had the idea that she would just like live forever fighting cancer um, and she was so stoic about it that like it wasn't even very present um, in interacting with her in our daily life and how old were lost- you during that 10 year uh, period she passed away five years ago almost exactly okay um so it was through your college years and high school well she was originally diagnosed in high school um and then yeah she passed away five years ago when i was mm-hmm. in law school mm. um and yeah it was it was really tough i mean i don't think there's that much that like it's just getting through it in some, some regards. It's like not yeah. no salve. I mean, I had, I certainly was lucky enough to like spend a lot of time with her and, and be there at the end with her and my family, um, which was, which is a beautiful thing to get to experience. Uh, it was also incredibly painful and, and difficult. Um, you know, and I think. I told you this story, I think, when we first met, but I had this experience shortly after she died that that was, like, really helpful for me, um, which was a dream (laughs) where this was in the same part of my life where I was, like, struggling with being in... I was already depressed and anxious in law school, being like, I'm on a path that doesn't feel like it fits me. I, like, looked around where I was in my life, and I was like, I don't feel like these are my people that this is where I should be, this, how did I get here? Mm-hmm. Um, and then my mother, like, just took a quick turn, and we didn't have much time before she passed away. And I was like, really, so then I was really out to sea, and I was really hurting. Um, and I had this dream where, um, I won't go through the entirety of the dream, but it was, you know, I was at this party, um, and... It was a very thinly veiled metaphor for where I was in my life in terms of just like being in this rigid structure in a place that was not familiar to me, which in real life was law school. In, the, in this dream, it was a party, uh, a Mormon party, pool party. And in the dream, I like was a, invited into to join the rest of the young Mormon people in this one pool where they were all jammed into a straight line. Um, and I looked down at my ankle as I was going to step into the pool and try to jam myself in there with them. And there was this wound above my ankle. And I was like, oh, I probably should not get into a pool with a bloody wound uh, <laughs> on my leg. And I pulled my leg out and I was like, oh, I kind of felt that I should move more towards my mom. And so I started moving away from this pool and started moving away towards where I felt that she was and this like kind of feel her pulling me towards her and then I realized that she had passed away probably like six weeks prior and uh, started getting very confused and I woke up and then the really crazy thing is a scab appeared on my leg over the next like 48 hours this black scab (laughs) where that wound was in the dream it didn't bleed at any point it's just like this it's kind of gross, but this black scab like boiled up 
onto the surface of my skin and then fell away and left a scar there that I still have that I just call my dream wound. Crazy. But it was like this, yeah, it was really crazy. Uh, but it felt like this nice message of being like, don't go down, I know I've said this so many times in this podcast, it was like, don't go down the path that, you know, you feel you are stuck to, mm-hmm. um, which is the feeling that I had. And it certainly like, it didn't make me feel immediately like totally fine with where I was, uh, but it helped certainly feel me feel closer to my mom, made me feel like better that she, in relation to her, with her having passed, and also gave me a sign that was like, okay, push, 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 oh, in the direction that you feel is right. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it looks a little crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Do you think that experience of, of losing your mom kind of softened you in any way or kind of made you have not a sense of urgency but a sense of you know giving you this sense of wanting to like you articulated it before taste everything and try everything and just kind of implanted in you maybe younger than it would have been for other people how short life is um i grew up with honestly uh, most of the funerals i went to growing up were for kids for, for people my age and so like that always put a feeling of urgency into my life, I think. Um, yeah, and going to children's, going to young people's funerals is the worst. Yeah. Um, and so I had this feeling, and I grew up in a, in a place where like there was a, a little bit more death that was common around and violence. Um, and so that always gave me more of a sense of like, oh, there's urgency <laughs> uh, to this place. Um. It certainly, I think it softened me just to how painful the human experience can be. Um, and so it's, I feel so much like tenderness towards other people most of the time, just because like, this is, this is a hard thing we're all doing. Um, and I don't feel like there's any reason why we should be mean to each other or unkind to each other. Or we, I don't feel like there's any way that we can't understand each other. Um, and so much of, I don't know, human interaction, social interaction is predicated on just people being on meanness and judgment, judgment. And I just, I don't know, it kind of broke something in me with regards to that. And I was like, oh no, this is, we should all just love each other. Yes, <laughs> love everyone. Let's just all love each other and get through this thing together and yes. try to make it as pleasant for each other as possible. <laughs> yes, that's the theme of my life and and this <laughs> podcast and you do a great do. job of that. Oh, so do you, and I think that's that's why we're friends. I yeah, I think that that's what it's all about. I I think it's you know a blessing to to be in that camp you know I think it's a lot it's an easier way to get through life than you know not that I'm perfect at it by any means but you know being on the staying on the side of trying to at least of you know connection and love and peace and away from you know fear and judgment and you know those things I think lead to melancholy you know which is maybe Mm -hmm. where I am naturally and like constantly pushing away from that to to stay on the the other spectrum of things but I think you know how much you know not only this experience but 
how much do you now think about death and talk about death and you know have being around it you know when you were younger and and that experience of course with your with your mom where are you with it now you know how often do you think about death what do you think happens oh i think about, i think about it all the time and in fact i i, <laughs> I want people I, I love talking to people about death and i always have to like kind of hold myself back when i meet someone for the first time and be like what happens yeah <laughs> what do you oh think me happens? too i mean it's my favorite thing to talk about is like death and money and fears and sex and like all the things you're not supposed to talk about or like all the things I want to talk about um so I think about it a lot I mean I I think I think about a lot in in part in how we relate to it as a society right we don't see it um we work very hard as a society to hide death and make it seem like it's a wrong thing and so I'm always like I think what that does to our sense of compassion, our sense of like gratitude in our society of entitlement. Like I think a lot of our values get distorted by our relationship to death, both in the way that we, we cover it up um, and stigmatize it. I think so I've, I have, there are project ideas that I have that I'd like to work on this year that involve like bringing death, more the concept of death into the public sphere a lot more. Um, Good, cool. <laughs> um, those are weird art projects, public art projects. Um, but loss is hard. I mean, I think one of the things I've thought about recently is this idea of. Um, impermanence right and impermanence is a big part of like buddhist teaching of like you have to recognize the impermanence of everything which is true and and impermanence is is to say that like a lot of pain in our lives comes through the fact that things don't stick around right Uh, which is why non-attachment is so huge in buddhism and in life for happiness but honestly i think what, what i've been thinking about more recently is like that that to me doesn't cover the situation adequately. <laughs> yeah, tell me more. Yeah, because well, because it's not just that we don't only have things disappearing and going away. The other half of that is that things emerge, right? and that's uh, and you have to have things disappear in order to allow things to emerge, right? Like you you have to. That's what change is. Mm-hmm. Change is things emerging and then going away and emerging and coming away, and the challenge of being alive seems to be how to love within all that change. So you learn to love things. You, in doing a lot of self-work, I can sometimes get into a place where I'm like, oh, things are good. <laughs> like, I feel really grounded. I feel like I'm in a good spot. Like, I love everything. All right? And then things change. <laughs> yeah. And, and part oh, yeah. of that's impermanence. Part of that is things that are like here going away, but also part of that's like things that weren't here emerging into my life, both good, positive things and negative things. Um, and so it's this constant practice, I guess, and of and I don't know how to describe this all that well. I don't think, but this constant practice of learning to love, and then things change, and learning to love that change, whatever it is, and then whether that's loss or something new emerging, whether that new thing is positive or negative, whatever, even if you lose something that's negative, it's still loss. Um, And so it's like this constant 
there's something really beautiful to me about that constant dance of love and change and then love loving that change and then things change again and then you have to learn again how to love and then things change and then you have to learn again how to love and it's this constant sort of ebb and flow yeah and death has to be part of that so first of all i love that because (laughs) (laughs) i think it's it's so true that that constant you know loving what is but also change is jarring, you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, being okay with that. But what does that exactly have to do with death? Or what do you think, you know, more specifically, you know, where do we go? What happens? Is it more change and loving? And tell me more. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I, you know, I have the dream wound and like, what is that? I've had some weird supernatural experiences and I've, but to me, it's one of those things where I'm like, I'm open to any possibility. I have no firm stance on it at this point. Um, I'm okay pretty much with anything, except for like maybe like traditional notions of like religion afterlife seems like crazy and totally messed up. Like the worst thing I can imagine is like the traditional like Christian afterlife where like most people are just going to hell and a few people are like, you know, hanging around in some clouds. Yeah. All, all of that seems boring and horrible. Yeah. Also highly unlikely. Right. So. Right. What about God? What yeah. Well, yeah. Sorry. Uh, go on. God to me is, I agree with statements like, you know, God is the shape of the mystery. God is transcendent. I like the analogy of, um, our ability to understand this stuff is about the ability of a dog to understand the internet, right? Like, <laughs> you can try to get a dog to understand what the internet is, but there's no way that dog is going to come close. That's kind of where I put a lot of this stuff, where I'm like, we can start pointing to it and uh, feeling it, but my, I don't believe that I need to have a really clear grasp of it because I'm not sure I'm capable of it. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not sure humans are. Um, I'll keep pushing in that direction. But death, open question. Yeah. But not terrible. I think it's I think it's beautiful in any form that I can realistically imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll just put down, you know, n- not terrible TBD. <laughs> TBD. But I'm pretty sure it's beautiful. Yeah. I always <laughs> Even love that. If it's nothing. Exactly. I love that analogy. It might be a Ramdas thing, but you know, most of my Ramdas is a la Pete Holmes translation of it. <laughs> and yeah. he says this thing, it, it also might not be him, but about death being like feeling like taking off a shoe that's too snug. Have you heard him <laughs> say that? No. Yeah, it just feels like that. And um I when my when my grandmother died last year, I used that in her um in her eulogy and seemed to seemed to be a hit. <laughs> I like that. How did you know it was a hit? <laughs> oh, I just feel like it oh, I don't know. It resonated for me and it made me feel better, so I'm hoping it was comforting to my family and everyone there. But who knows? <laughs> I was hoping that they like cheered at the line. They got a, it got a laugh. I don't know if it yeah. got a laugh. I went underwater right away. <laughs> Um, well, I think you're such a great listener and you are super empathetic and 
have you always had that quality and have you always been, you know, so empathetic and loyal? Is that something that you've cultivated with the work that you've, you know, been doing on, on yourself and through your twenties and thirties? Oh God. Um, <laughs> I don't, um, I hope that I am those things. I, I don't necessarily, uh, I, I mean, I hope that I am really empathetic and a good listener and loyal. I think, my experience of you has been all, all of the above, so. Um, I have a hard time taking, like, direct compliments well <laughs> and ingesting them, but. Well, this show, it's, you know, it's a love letter, your love letter to you on the podcast. <laughs> You're just taking it in. It's an exercise. Yeah, it's an exercise. Um, I think to the extent that some of those things are true, those things that those things are true, I think comes from. I have no idea if they've always been there. I mean, I, I certainly grew up like a lonely, somewhat lonely kid. <laughs> so I've certainly, I, I think that taught me how to listen to people and watch them and understand and, and learn that people were really understandable, um, that everyone was coming from a really understandable place. And I think that helps. Um, I haven't, I'd say like I've worked on being able to listen to people better because I can get inside my own head, certainly, and my, my brain can get overactive in terms of wanting to, like, solve problems or break things down. Um, yeah, but and I think as I've gotten older and as I've experienced so much good and bad, like, really painful times, I've, and having worked in so many different fields um, and places, like, you get to see the broad spectrum of humanity traveling and working in different ways. Um, and as I've gotten to see that more and more, I think I've just continued to like soften towards people. Mm. I love that. Soften towards people. I think everybody could do a stand to do a little bit more softening towards people, especially right yeah. now. Yes. Especially <laughs> right now. How do you take care of yourself mentally? You know, how do you handle stress on a day-to-day basis and you know you seem so grounded and healthy and make it look so easy you know what is your secret are, are you in therapy you mentioned you meditate what are some other you know self-care practices you do on a on a regular basis uh yeah definitely go to therapy i love it um i also have like a work therapist that my company that kickstarter pays for that comes really? in like every two weeks oh yeah it's great Oh my think, goodness! Can every company? I think his take title is that? technically a coach, but like essentially, it's just work therapy. <laughs> I love that. Oh, it's every, great! Every, no wonder Kickstarter is doing so well. <laughs> we all need that. <laughs> yeah, we all do need that. Um, I think one of the things that's really helped me over the last couple of years, in particular, is learning how to sit both like in the drama of day-to-day life because certainly things at work can be really dramatic or things you know socially can be really dramatic and consuming and I can get wrapped wrapped up in the drama of it and get stressed out um and there's a practice to being in the drama and watching the drama at the same time uh so I can I don't want to detach myself from say whatever's happening at work or uh whatever's happening socially that might otherwise be really stressful. I want to experience that anxiety and that stress, but also place it within the context of me within the play, right? Like I'm in the play and I'm watching the play. 
And in watching the play, the whole thing is beautiful. And plays need villains. They need tension. They need risk. Uh, If none of those things existed, the play would be really bad. (laughs) Right. So, and that allows me to, say, take someone in my life that I'm at odds with and maybe having a disagreement with and still feel like appropriately that I am disagreeing with this person for whatever reason, but also not take it so seriously, not carry it so heavily. Cause I can also watch myself in the play. That is this interaction. And both those characters need to be there. And both those characters are understandable. Um, and I am, I'm sure the villain in someone else's play or the source of tension in someone else's play. Uh, but I love the play for yeah, all of its characters. Yeah. You no, know? it's like, maintain like being in two those two places at once helps me stay grounded helps me like keep particularly like anxiety uh and stress at bay because uh, i don't get so wrapped up in things mm. again so okay. timely for me to hear so helpful and i think you know it's kind of i think pete says this like it's a good life episode you know when something challenging happens and something uncertain i think it's it's kind of that that same content good play good life episode without the conflict it would be boring and it's hard to remember that when you're in it and i have this like i think i've told you this maybe and i've definitely said this on the podcast but i always say that louise hay affirmation of all is well everything is working out for my highest good out of this situation even this really shitty terrible one (laughs) only good will come and i am safe you know it like covers all the bases of like okay you can like calm down so you know your rational mind can like chill out so you know your intuitive mind can kind of figure out how to handle it which i love great advice all of that Um, Another thing that I ask everyone, as you know, I wrote this book about journaling. So writing Mm -hmm. for me is a great way to kind of sort out what I'm thinking and and parse through that and and get to know myself better. Do you ever journal? Has writing ever been something that's been helpful for you? Uh, Yes, I I definitely journal. Um, I have books and books of (laughs) me writing to myself. Um, I journal, yeah, I usually journal about problems that I'm facing or thinking through my feelings Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because there's a lot of times where I will I don't know how I feel in the moment about something and that helps to write through my feelings um, to provide clarity so yeah I've been doing that for years really Um, particularly yeah as I've done more self-work I've found it very useful and I'll do sometimes I'll do practices that are like if I'm journaling in the morning, I'll try to set an intention for the day. Um, if I'm doing it in the evening, I'll like reflect on that intention and whether or not like I felt like I lived up to it, um, and why or why not, and then express like gratitude for some some things. <laughs> mm. I I love that, and obviously, fellow journaling cheerleader, I think it's so valuable, and I just love hearing other people's experiences of it. Another thing that I ask everyone that comes on the show, and usually primarily they're women, but we talk a lot about body image and when you're feeling funky or having what I call a bad body image day, you know, how to pull Mm -hmm. yourself out of that. But I would love to get your perspective as a male, um, even though I do think this issue affects everyone, I think it's, you know, intensified for women because of, you know, society. 
But is, has that been something that you've ever dealt with? And how do you kind of pull yourself out of, you know, feeling funky in yourself aesthetically and just focusing more on who you are inside all of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly dealt with it growing up. Uh, I was, I mean, yeah, I was totally ashamed of my body growing up. And, like, I remember in my freshman year of college, like, I would, everyone else would, like, walk to the showers, you know, like, the communal shower space, like, in the, with their, their towel wrapped around their waist, normal. But I was, like, way too ashamed to do that. So I'd always go in, like, full clothing and then go into the stall and then derobe. Because mm. um, I was, on a, I mean, I was, like, a, I was very small. I was, like, this, like, scrawny, 130 pound nearly six foot six feet tall uh boy who looked like i was probably about 12 years old my freshman year um and so everyone just seemed like this giant and i was yeah and i think i've remained pretty scrawny (laughs) um that hasn't changed uh i just learned to i don't know I, i i took a ton of work um probably over about eight years to come out of that um, place. And now, I, for the most part, I feel good in my body most days. Um, I'm trying to think of how I relate to it. I mean, I think right now I, I relate to so much more my head than my body, which seems like this weird gangly thing that my brain is attached to. Um I'm about as skinny as ever and not muscular at all. <laughs> I think most people's wrists are, are bigger than my biceps. Um, certainly most guys' wrists are bigger than my biceps. Um, but it just seems comfortable to me now because I'm like, oh, this is me. And as long as like I've learned to love myself, like I have to learn to love like how skinny my arms are. Yes. Um, like I find it kind of hilarious that I am in this body. Yeah. And my I am at my happiest honestly like dancing which yes. you've, never, you've never seen me do but um, I I would argue that I have a little bit with some Krishna Das playing. That's true. You've never seen me really like while out. Okay, well, I hope that that happens in New York very soon. Um and that is to me like a, a truly ecstatic experience and is the easiest way for me to get out of my own head. And that to me is like something I'm very like is me practicing gratitude for my body because it enables me to do this like very silly, totally non-rational thing of like moving my body around. Um, and that's actually been a really big component of me learning to love my body is like it allows me to dance. And so therefore, <laughs> therefore it is good. Oh, I love all of that, including your biceps and your wrists and all of you. You're amazing. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> exactly as you are. Okay, so let's do some quickfire questions and tie this podcast up in a bow. You ready? Yeah. Okay, so just kind of say the first thing that comes to your mind. Some of these are longer, some of them are shorter. Okay. So what are your morning routines? What are maybe the first three things you do when you wake up in the morning, and how does that affect how the rest of your day goes? Sure. Uh, if I've uh, The first thing I do is usually make a smoothie. Uh which just, I guess, just fills me up and makes me feel good. Nice. What's, go, what's sh- going in the smoothie? Uh, my smoothies, which I have no basis for really advocating, are Brazil nuts. Ooh, love like mixed Brazil berries. Yum. Banana, almond milk, raw honey, bee pollen, coconut oil. Yeah, that's it. Gang's all there. <laughs> Gang's all Big there. Color. That sounds delicious. You could even throw some spinach in there some days if you wanted. 
That's true. I don't really have a big enough blender to like uh, put things in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, then I shower. I almost always shower like just sitting in a ball on the bottom of my tub. <laughs> what do you mean? Wait, what? I know this is weird, but like I'm always so tired in the morning, <laughs> and it's so much easier to like sit down in the shower. And just like wait, what sit kind of there. tub do you have? So just like a regular tub, but you just this sit. Is a regular. I just sit and it's showering, and then I shave sitting, you know, sitting in the. In so my... it's like a bath, but you're like you're sitting as if you were in a bath, except the sh- it's a shower. Yes, that's correct. Oh my gosh, that's amazing, and I've never heard that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a more. I don't know why everyone isn't sitting down. <laughs> Me neither. I'm so tired in the morning that Me that's neither. what I need we're to do. We're all doing it wrong. Uh, yeah, it's great. I highly recommend it. <laughs> that is great. Anything else uh, in the mornings? And then I'll usually do like some yoga in the morning. I'll do like a yoga routine. And then if I have time, I'll, I'll meditate. But that's only if I'm like <laughs> doing really well. What kind Otherwise, of meditations are you doing? I'll just do like five to 15 minutes in the morning that's focused on my breath. Just trying to ground myself. Nice. I mean, I usually have put my phone on airplane mode the night before. And I try not to like re- enter digital society or connect with the digital world until I get to the office, which I highly recommend. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I, I try to do that too. I think anytime when my phone is on airplane mode, it's just more productive. These, these conversations being, maybe that's why I host a podcast just to have another excuse to put my phone on airplane mode <laughs> for a while. What about in the evening? What do you do when you get home from work? What are some of the ways that you wind down the last few things you do to relax before bed? Um, well, usually when I get home from work, I wind up doing more work, uh, but I'm a little bit of a workaholic. Actually, most of the people I work with say I'm a lot of workaholic. I'm very much a workaholic. That's also because I love my job. Um, the last things I do before I go to bed is turn down the lights. So put everything on airplane mode, shut down my computer, um, turn down the lights so it gets really quiet. I'll frequently, um, like burn incense. I have all these like wood incense smells that like make it smell like there's a fireplace in my apartment Um, and then I'll usually go through a routine of a little bit of exercise um, and reading out of either one of the eight books depending (laughs) on what I'm feeling Um, journaling meditation sleep nice cool okay favorite fruit and favorite vegetable Favorite fruit is probably mango. Like a great, a good mango is the best thing in the world. Um, favorite vegetable is probably broccoli. broccoli. Mm, Brussels sprouts. Oh yeah, Brussels. Cool. Both are good. Favorite place to eat in New York City, or and then also anywhere. <laughs> also anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of my favorite place to eat is the restaurant right across the street from my apartment, La Conda. Um, they make excellent Negronis. It's very reasonably priced. It's excellent like what? Negronis. What's that? cocktail. Oh. Learning Campari, so much. vermouth, and gin oh. in equal measure. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's just like a really lovely, warm, friendly neighborhood place where, you know, they welcome me as, mm. as a neighbor. Oh, cool. Uh, I'm excited to go there with you. <laughs> yeah, let's definitely and go. And have a, what's it called? Negroni. Negroni. And then in every, in the world, I, God, I have no idea. 
I mean, honestly, the best places, like my favorite meals are always like with friends. Yeah. So it's not about place. It's just like having dinner with my family or with friends in someone's house is I, I greatly prefer to eating out. Yeah, same. It's all about the act. I like the activity of eating a lot better than the eating itself. Yeah, so let's say my favorite place to eat in the world is in Maui with you. Yes, we had so many great meals. I love that. Okay, this is a, this is a bigger question. I'm, I'm really excited for your thoughts and feelings on this. But what are your thoughts and feelings on social media and your relationship with it? Yeah. Um, I don't engage with it that much, which is funny because I work on the internet. Um, but... And I hate the self-promotion aspects of it. I'm not on Twitter, uh, really. I'm not on. I mean, I'm on Facebook, but I don't post very often. Or if I do, it's posting. You know, <laughs> I post way too frequently about Kickstarter projects. Um, I'm on Instagram. Instagram, I'm okay with, just because it's so lightweight and it's just pictures. But the whole thing is, I don't know. I'm happier when I leave it aside to be honest and right now it's I think particularly difficult I mean social media has changed a lot since the election uh, and it's so intense and frothy and there's a lot of very good things on there but it can become very easily overwhelming and, and too consuming so I like going on there when I have an explicit ask or reason to engage Pretty Facebook. If I have a reason to talk to the community of people I know at length about something or point to them at something, then I have. Then I'll go there. But the sort of daily drumbeat of posting to social media, I think, is makes people not very present and doesn't add up to much. Yeah, I think that's a really fair, good answer. You know, as someone who loves social media and engages with it in a, in a different way, I've recently cut out like scrolling like I just am like why am I doing that like I I can go on I can post and I can go and like type in you know John Leland and look at what you've posted but I there's no reason that I need to be in a feed ever you yeah know? Um, so that's you know the way I'm kind of cutting it out in a, in a similar way because you're right I, you feel better that way or I do at least and I think being in Maui alone particularly before I joined the retreat it was you know I didn't really have cell phone service or connection to the the world the <laughs> the idea of boredom right like being bored for long stretches of time is just something that we've like cut out of our lives these days yeah. because any moment of boredom just becomes scrolling through a feed um that's meant to distract you from that boredom but boredom's really lovely it's just a you know it's a slow burn but it's like a good thing to reconnect with i think <laughs> yes yes preach i completely agree what is your favorite place that you've ever visited and what's somewhere that you still want to go? Um, favorite place? I've so many favorite places. Um, oh, they're all like crowding into my head and competing with each other now. Uh, the most beautiful all-over place I can recommend to people is probably New Zealand just because it's the South Island of New Zealand is sparsely populated and magnificently beautiful. Um, and I tend to be happiest in nature on top of mountains, uh, on top of snowy mountains. So I've done that there in the Southern Alps. And the Sierra Nevadas, the John Muir Trail, I, is one of my happy places <laughs> um, where I still want to go. 
I might go to Patagonia this year. Uh, I'd like to do like a horseback riding trip in Central Asia because I'm fascinated by um, like the history of the, that place and particularly like the domestication of the horse and the way language emerged out of that place. My uncle is an archaeologist who studies those things and I've gotten like really into it from there. Um, so I'd like to do like a horseback riding trip through Central Asia um, and India. Those are like the three places on my list right now. Cool. Very cool. Well, if you need a travel partner, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you do when you're overwhelmed or stressed or having a shitty day? You know, how do you pull yourself out of that and kind of snap back into into the flow? Um, walks are great, usually. Honestly, like I try to, uh, I try to put myself in a physical space that is. Uh, has some sense of expanse to it, um, if that makes sense. So I'll walk down a pier and then just be on the water. Mm, yeah. If I can like go somewhere where I recognize that the world is a lot larger than me, then it helps shift my perspective back into a healthy place. So be quiet in a big space. <laughs> because I think, particularly in New York, it's challenging. You're constantly confined to these small spaces, right? You're in a building, you're in a room. Even when you're out on the street, you're so closed in by buildings that your field of vision doesn't go very far. You're just constantly kind of in this little tight box. And when you're feeling really stressed out uh, and anxious, there's a similar feeling inside your head of like how you become the most, like your drama becomes the most important thing in the universe and like you blow it out of proportion. And making myself small is a really helpful way of sort of getting out of that place. Ooh, I love that. That's really great. Speaking of New York, what you gave me some really great advice about living in New York. Do you remember what it what it was? That you should live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> that Instead of apartment just outside of New York. <laughs> yes, that that was actually also a really big life changing thing that you taught me but also about that living in New York the way that you can do it is always having a plane ticket to leave I believe you <laughs> oh, said yeah, <laughs> Which... yeah that, that well because New York is is tough right it is stressful it is very consuming um and so the the happiest you can be is living in New York but with a plane ticket to leave yeah because if because it allows you to to be present here without the feeling of like oh my god is this what life is always going to be like yeah this this fast-paced, this sort of demanding of my time. A lot of demands are super fun, right? There's so many opportunities to do, like go see concerts or shows or cultural events or whatever and see people. There's so much happening that demands so much uh, that like it's good to be like, I, I can fully embrace doing tons of stuff here now because I know in four weeks I'm going to be on a beach somewhere in the woods somewhere. Yeah. I love that. I I think that's very necessary. What's your favorite part of, of living in New York City? You gave so many great answers. Is there? Did you cover it there, or is there something else? Uh, there's an aspect of New York that I really love that I think is really uh, undervalued, yeah. which is, yeah, because having lived in California, you know, actually found people to be more isolated in California, in San Francisco and in Los Angeles because I don't think there's as many communal experiences that there happen in New York. New York is like 
this crazy place where everyone's jammed on top of each other. And there's all these communal experiences that we all share that really bind you to the rest of the people in New York. And that includes things like the weather. So we just had like got snow dumped on us. Right. And everyone is experiencing the weather together. Whereas in Los Angeles, like it's just sunny every day. When it's like the first sunny day of spring in New York, you can like look at the person next to you and be like, let's go do something. Let's take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. Even if they're a stranger, and they'll be like, yes. No one has that sense of urgency in Los Angeles. Uh, and in San Francisco, there's different weather every three blocks. So <laughs> no one's experiencing the same weather in that weird city. Um, but also things like the subway. Like the subway is this ex- like insane experience that everyone uh, has with each other where you're all just jammed into these cars <laughs> in this really inhumane way frequently. And it's people at all levels of society from all different places. And you're all smelling the same smell in that car and <laughs> touching each other. And that binds you to the people around you and gives you this feeling of like, no, we're all in this together. We're all getting through this together. Um, that I really love. And I didn't feel in Los Angeles or San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Cause everyone's in yeah. there. Lifts and their Ubers, and yeah. what I learned firsthand with you is that getting in a Lyft or an Uber is not the quickest way to get somewhere slash Chris Gethard's <laughs> show <laughs> in time. That's very true. Sometimes it's true. Learning how to get around New York is is definitely a skill, and it takes some time. Yeah, I am. Yes, that is something that I wish there was a podcast for, <laughs> which <laughs> I think is just called life experience. Yeah, um, I think that's life experience. Yeah. So what is your favorite part of your life right now? Oh, what's my favorite part of my something life? Something that you're looking forward to and something that is exciting. Uh, going back to Maui. Yay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I am excited about creating things a lot because I've always had a lot of anxiety about like my own sense of creative agency. and um, I'm excited about this year about putting more things out into the world big and mostly small but they're just things that I've always wanted to make and sh- yeah share uh, and even though they scare me and make me nauseous to even pursue and I feel like embarrassed about what I want to do and the fact that I want to share them like I'm excited to do that mm, cool I'm excited to consume them <laughs> <laughs> and support them. Yay. I will share them with you. Can't wait. I will talk more about them on your follow-up episode coming soon. Sounds great. What is your greatest lesson about relationships? Oh, man. I am not the person to ask with that. Um, <laughs> what's the greatest lesson about relationships? I mean, I think... Uh, um. One that, like, I can frequently, I've learned how to divorce loving the other person from my relationship to the relationship itself. I kind of imagine the relationship as this, like, third entity um, that's like this weird little baby that's made between two people. Mm -hmm. And so I can be like, I love you a ton and deeply as a person. I may not love the weird relationship baby that we've made, though. (laughs) That may not be working for me. And learning how to divorce those two things, I think for a long time I struggled with conflicting, what felt like um, conflicting feelings between loving a person and being unhappy in a relationship. 
um, and learning to that those two things didn't have to be intention um, has been a really big lesson for me. Well, that's such a good one. Do you think that it can ever be the opposite? Like you love the relationship, but the other person isn't like that wow. love goes. <laughs> that love goes. Um, I don't know. I think I think you can. I don't think you can like really love the relationship and then not love the other person, but right. I think you can get very comfortable and get attached to I think people definitely do get attached yeah. to a relationship and what it feels like for them and the like, the identity that they have in that relationship and carry around socially for them. Yeah. I've, I've done really that connecting or loving the other person. Yeah. Yeah. Or not like anymore or something. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Interesting things to talk about. Okay, so this is a, this is a fun one. You're having a dinner party, and you can invite five people. What do you cook slash eat? Who do you invite? And what do you hope that they turn and ask you and want to talk about? And what do you hope that isn't brought up that you don't feel like talking about? Katie, this is such a hard question. I know. Uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are these people all living? Is that the idea? Uh, it can be either. It can be either. Oh. Just the first ones that come to your mind. I know this is just a time capsule of where you are today, and you'll be back on the show many times. Uh, I mean, the first person that comes to mind uh, who's like always kind of been my personal hero is Robert F. Kennedy, um, who I oh, love. I knew you were going to say that. I knew, I, it's so funny. I knew you were going to say that because like, I think of you as a Kennedy in my mind. <laughs> Thank you. I love, did um, you see Jackie? Did you see the movie? I have not seen Jackie. Yet. Oh, it was it was it was very good. Okay, sorry to interrupt you. I'm just very excited about my like, premonition. Um, so yeah, Robert Kennedy, who I adore uh, and greatly admire, and I'm always sad that he did, was murdered. Yeah. Um, did you see that movie, Bobby? Yes. Did you oh. did you like it? Did you think it was well done with the story? I thought it was well. I thought yeah, I thought it was very well done. Um, I liked it too. Then I don't know, probably. I mean, I guess I should invite Ram Dass. I'd definitely invite Ram Dass. He can bring Neem Curly Baba. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he would totally want him there. Totally. Um, there's five people. I'm trying to think of like the other people that I've always grown up admiring were like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> These are you such come. nerdy. I really, but these are like the heroes growing up were like Abraham Lincoln and Robert Kennedy. So it's very dude heavy. It could go for some female That's, energy here. Um, well, no, I already met her. <laughs> who? Uh, Jenny Slate. Oh, I, she's so her. cool. Yeah, you met her at Sundance. So what was she cool. like? Tell us everything. Oh, she! I didn't get. I didn't talk to her very long. She was very sweet and, and nice. She was in a, a movie uh, written by a friend of mine. Um, so cool. But I do want like a comedic voice there, and I love her so much. Oh yeah, she would be great there. Can she come? I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna invite Jenny Slate. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> smart choice. Awesome. Um, and then, what am I cooking for them? Well, I feel like you know. You can Ramda have it catered. I can have a catered. Mm-hmm. Well, I will definitely cook. Okay. I, like I did cook dinner for seven people on Friday. But, really? I didn't realize that you were a cook. Um, I feel like it gets hard with these guests. Cause, like, what are their dietary restrictions? Right. Neem Curly Baba and Ram Dass are definitely straight up vegan. 
and I don't know exactly what I would cook for them in that regard. I could give you some suggestions. I'm good there. Yeah. I would need to fly out my friends because Great. that's not my, my typical cuisine. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy to cook that. Well, what am I saying? I never cook. <laughs> I'm not a good cook. But we could we could give you some good recipes, and you're a good cook. And you we can, can figure it, it out. We can figure it out. We're smart people. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you guys want to talk about, and what do you hope doesn't come up at that table? <laughs> I think um, – what do I want to talk about? I mean, right now I'd want to talk about how to respond to this moment in time. Um, in our society, I'm, I, that's what I'm currently grappling with in a lot of respects, is like, what is the right action for me to be taking with regards to everything that's happening? Um, there's a lot of, like, I, like, most people care about being more active in response to the current political situation, and I have things that I particularly care about with regards to, like, environmental justice, and uh, I'm just trying to figure out, like, how to respond to it and how to, like, what role I can play in, again, like getting us to a place where we make people's lives more gentle um, and are more gentle to each other. I mean, that's what seems to be so much of what's been lost over the last, you know, not just this last year, but we've steadily been losing is that feeling of communal understanding and love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what role I can play in and hopefully turning the, the ship back the other direction, but that's what I'd like to talk about. And I think everyone there would have interesting perspectives on that. Yeah, and experiences with it from mm -hmm. different times. Jenny Slate would be, maybe be the most important person. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Anything that you hope kind of doesn't come up that you would rather not talk about? No. Open book? Yeah, open book. Nice. Okay, so this period in the podcast is where I really like to make sure I've just wrung you dry for everything you're worth. <laughs> so you get to just recommend a bunch of different things. So I'll, I'll kind of cue you at, at the things. What is one book that you love that you're either – you kind of told us what you're reading now, but what is – if you could recommend one book to everyone listening, um, what would it be? Um, a recent book I really loved that I read is State of Wonder by Anne Pritchett. Oh, yeah, Anne Pritchett. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I love – that book, did you read Elizabeth Gilbert's um, book, Big Magic? I haven't yet, although I totally should read that book. Okay, you would love it, and I highly recommend it. But she talks about that book and Anne Pat. They're really close friends, and she talks oh. about that idea. Well, I'll just tell you the story really quickly. Spoiler alert to Big Magic. But basically, she talks about ideas being, if you've seen her TED Talk, she's mentioned this before about how you know they, they're kind of this ethereal thing, and creativity comes and goes in this really beautiful way. And she was saying that she had an idea for a book that took place in the exact same place and had all of these plot lines. And um, she told Ann Patchett that over coffee one day and basically like Ann Patchett was like, I'm writing that book right now. And so, and Liz was like, oh my God, thank goodness. Cause like, I'm not really inspired by it. And I've been like distracted by this other idea. And she, the whole point of that story was that like, if ideas aren't acted upon, they'll go into someone else's brain. And, um, <laughs> Anyway, it's a cool. It's a cooler. It's way. I didn't tell that properly at all. It's way cooler in the book. But anyway, so I've, I have so that. Cool. I have that book um, on my phone to on Audible actually to read, and I haven't yet. But anyway, cool. I'm glad you liked it. It was what fantastic. Is, 
Cool. What about movie? Um, a movie that you think people need to see or something that you've seen recently? You can even get a, a couple if you want. Um, the movies I've seen recently that I really loved were Arrival. Um, yeah. It's too bad that Amy Adams was not nominated. Um, it also is very, I think, timely, uh, given what's going on in society. also really loved The 13th, the Netflix documentary on um, just like the way, the, the thread between uh, slavery, Jim Crow laws, um, and legal segregation and our criminal justice system. Yeah. Really important one. Mm-hmm. What about um, a song, something you've been listening to music-wise, anything that you want to recommend? Ooh. Um, things I've been listening to music-wise. Um, well... Besides Krishna Das, who is... <laughs> you know him just singing to his Baba. <laughs> just singing to his Baba. Um, I mean, I guess I've been listening to like a lot of like pretty popular stuff these days. Run the Jewels, Father John Misty. Those are all great. Nice. Um, the National, always great. Always uh, great. And then like dancing in my apartment to, you know, Justin Bieber and Robin and things like that. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. That runs the gamut. What about podcasts? What are you listening to? Anything you want to recommend? Um, well, your podcast. Oh, my um, goodness. You Made It Weird, obviously. Those are the big ones that I listen to. We love um, that in this family. I do sometimes listen to uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is like really nerdy history podcast that's overly dramatic that I highly recommend if you're into that stuff. Cool. What about a quote or idea that, you know, you could leave people with like a final thought, either yours or someone else's that you've adapted as yours? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't live by quotes very often. Like I don't live, I'm not someone who collects quotes and like has them up. Um, Just even like an idea. Yeah. I think the biggest idea for me in my life right now, particularly over the last several weeks, has been just the idea of, um, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to articulate it, but it is the relationship between change and love. Because I've heard so much about both of those those concepts, but recognizing that so much of what's difficult is not just learning to love something, but also recognizing that all of this is going to change. Um and then I'm going to have to learn how to love whatever that is. <laughs> mm. um, and that that is, I don't know, I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of in love with that process. Yeah. Um, that's it. That's, that's where I'm at. And it's a process that you can't escape, so might as well fall yeah. in love with it. But it'd be so boring if it wasn't that. True. That's the thing. What, what would be a better state of things? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's hard. I guess that being okay with that change and uncertainty and leaving the coziness and like going on the hero's journey once you're on it feels good. But sometimes it, we can, I don't know. I'll speak for even myself. Even if you to, stay safe, right? Like even if you try true. to keep things the same, it's going to change. True. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, loving, what did, what did you call it? Loving the change? 
Lo- love and change. Yeah, love and, then and learning, change. Then loving the change. <laughs> All of the above. Okay, this has been amazing. I had so much fun. The name of this podcast is Let It Out. So when I offer that term to you, John, to let it out, what does that mean to you? And is there anything that you feel like you haven't let out on this last, you know, two-hour <laughs> winding, meandering conversation? No, you've, you've drawn it out of me. Um, <laughs> no, I think that that phrase is, is a challenging one for me because I was, I grew up such like a kind of quiet, lonely kid that's always been in my own head. So letting it out to me is just learning to express myself. And that requires both, that requires first knowing oneself and being present with whatever's going on inside me, learning to understand it and then learning to vocalize it or express it in some way. And that's, that's a, that's always a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like why I named the book, let it out and why I journal is because it's about exactly what you said. Like first you have to get to know yourself before you can actually be that in the world. And I think we're constantly trying to get know ourselves more so we can get better at being ourselves, you know? Exactly. Cool. Well, this was amazing. I had so much fun. Did you have fun? Thank you for doing I this. Great time. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Okay, last question. Can we be friends forever? Mm, yeah. Great. Perfect. Well, but things will change. So <laughs> we are going to die. And we'll love that too. <laughs> yeah. It'll be great. Amazing. guys that was my very long conversation with john leland i love him and i'm sure you did too i'm so grateful he came on the show let us know what you think about it join the facebook group and let's just you know keep talking hopefully i see a bunch of you guys this weekend at the good fest i cannot wait and at our meetup afterward and shout out to jackie listener of the podcast who planned the meetup and made the flyers and did everything because she's amazing so huge shout out to her If you're coming, let's, you know, give her a special hug. And one more time, let's just talk about the sponsors quickly because we know them, we love them. CW, it makes you feel amazing. It helps you with calm and clarity and relieving stress and exercise-induced stress. And I love it. So try it out. Use the code LETITOUT for 10% off. And also try Aptive to get that exercise-induced, you know, anxiety or whatever, you know, might as well work out and use Aptive because it's so easy. So try Aptive. For free for 30 days using that same code, let it out, and then after you do your workout, pop some uh, CW hemp oil and you'll feel amazing. All right, love you guys so much. The emoji for this week's episode is the sunset. So tweeted us the sunset emoji. It just came to me right now, but I feel like it's fitting because, uh, you know, John and I met on the beach and we were in Maui, and who doesn't like a sunset? So tweeted us the sunset. Leave it on my Instagram to let me know you're still listening to me rambling at this point. I can't wait to see some of you guys in Philly, and I'll definitely do a meetup when I move to New York, which is coming up really soon, and I'll talk to you guys about that later, because it's already been really long, but love you so much. Talk to you guys next week. Bye! Mm -hmm.